difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky cannot be with us this episode because of rights issues related to the Iranian Revolution. Every week we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week we're cheating a little as we're technically tackling two new films, but they're also two old films, sort of. And they're both two lost films in the light of day, although one remains a little more lost than the other. It's confusing. Tasha, can you help untangle this? I I can try. Uh, In our first episode, we'll be looking at Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind, a film he worked on from 1970 through 1976, but ultimately had to leave unfinished. Why did it take so long? Why did he leave it unfinished? And why are we seeing it now? And on Netflix, of all places. We will get into that. But the short answer is that making movies is always hard, and some films are harder to make than others. And some are disastrous, as Sandy Tan discovered the hard way. As a movie-mad teenager in Singapore, Tan set out to direct and star in a surreal road movie about a serial killer. And she did, but then she lost the entire movie through no fault of her own. Her new film, Shirkers, is a documentary about that experience. We'll get into that story next week, but it's worth noting that even more than most movies, it's worth going to Shirkers unspoiled. And right now, it's just a click away on Netflix. It's going to be an unusual couple of episodes addressing a couple of unusual movies. This week, we'll talk about Wells's The Other Side of the Wind, a film completed years after his death and designed to feel fractured even if he had been able to see it through. Then next week, we'll discuss Shirkers, the film Tan made 25 years after her original Shirkers fell through. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I just want to know what he represents. The man is infested with disciples. I'm the apostle. Just like me and God. How could you tell us apart? Patrick's new movie? The Other Side of the Wind. What's that about the movie? We don't talk about the movie. So you old guys are trying to get with it. Is that what this movie's about? Well, we don't actually know. What do we know? Jake is just making it up as he goes along. He's done it before. Movies and friendship. Those are my stress. Mr. Hannaford, could you please slow down? Mr. Hannaford! What he creates, he has to wreck. It's a compulsion. Want me to bring you another Scott? <laughs> We'll have our own movies. A real movies. Well, here it is. If anybody wants to see it. When Orson Welles died in 1985, conventional wisdom had settled on an assessment of his career. At age 25 in 1941, he made what was long considered the greatest film ever made one filled with groundbreaking techniques used in service of a quintessential American story. But he never topped that film, Citizen Kane, and he spent the rest of his career on a downward slope. Like much conventional wisdom, this summary of his career was a gross oversimplification at best. Wells never stopped trying to push his filmmaking craft forward. 
He just kept meeting roadblocks along the way. His next feature, The Magnificent Ambersons, is a masterpiece hobbled by studio interference, and that set the pattern for much of the rest of his career. He didn't get smaller, Hollywood did, which led him to seek work and money elsewhere. That came with its own challenges, movies left unfinished and major achievements left for dead. But he never lost it. For proof, look no further than his elegiac 1965 Shakespeare adaptation, Chimes at Midnight, or the unclassifiable 1975 documentary, F for Fake. Then there was The Other Side of the Wind, the loudest of the ghosts haunting Wells' filmography. Wells began the film after returning to America in 1970, and it was supposed to represent a fresh start, a chance to reclaim a spot in a Hollywood dominated by new talents that revered him, but didn't see him as a contemporary. So he decided to outweird them, making a movie called The Other Side of the Wind, about an aging film director making a movie called The Other Side of the Wind. Wells opted to shoot the film in a radically discordant style, as if assembled from footage shot by the many camera-toting attendees of director Jake Hannaford's 70th birthday party, whose ranks include real-life directors such as Claude Chabrol and Dennis Hopper, characters model after Pauline Kael, John Milius, Mickey Rooney, Marlena Dietrich, and others, and Peter Bogdanovich playing a Hannaford acolyte whose success threatens his one-time master. Then, as the film works towards Hannaford's suicide, it occasionally interrupts the bickering and chaos of the festivities with scenes from Hannaford's in-progress film, a baffling but beautiful pastiche of European arthouse directors in general and Michelangelo Antonioni in particular. Wells shot the film on and off for six years, and its production has become the subject of a good but superficial documentary that's also now on Netflix called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, and an even better book by Josh Karp called Orson Welles' Last Movie. The -the behind-the-scenes stories are pretty remarkable, capturing a director working without enough money to realize his vision, but determined to realize it anyway. And sometimes that vision shifted a bit. Wells, who insisted the film wasn't the least bit representational of his life, initially took the part of Hannaford himself for off-screen readings. Then he handed the role off to John Huston, maybe the only other actor-slash-filmmaker capable of playing such a larger-than-life role. Bogdanovich took over a role originated by impressionist Rich Little, who left the shoot under still murky circumstances. The shoot stretched on and on as the money came and went, and when Wells finished shooting, he still couldn't finish the movie, which became the subject of legal disputes too complicated to get into here, at least some involving money tied up in Iranian banks after the 1979 revolution. Now it's been finished for him, completed by referring to a partial rough cut in Wells' notes. How does it look? Strange, honestly. There's some mental gymnastics involved in watching the movie, which doesn't feel like a 2018 film, but doesn't really play like a product of the 70s either. There's nothing else really like it, either in Wells' filmography or in the new Hollywood landscape in which he was hoping to find a place. It's a singular, confounding, sometimes overwhelming piece of work, one that suggests Wells is willing to pursue his inspiration to some dangerous places all the way to the end of his life. It's further evidence, however belatedly presented, that he didn't lose his way after Citizen Kane. Everyone else just struggled to figure out where he was going. Mr. Ireland, is it true you're planning a western? This is Mr. Hannaford's night. Let's save the questions for him, huh? You two are very close, aren't you? Yes, I'd like to ask you about that. Why? Come on, Hannaford. Why do you think you have to be as rude as he is? As rude as you are, in print anyway. I liked your last one. Yeah, sure. No, I know that it was was repetitive, but uh, uh, for what it was, it worked. Yeah, well, she wasn't that kind to me in her review. Not that you did me too much harm. I mean, how much harm can you do to the third biggest grocer in movie history? You make that much harm. Yes, uh, did you know that when his own production company goes public, that your friend there stands to walk away with $40 million? Yeah, and she's going to say that I'm just going to keep on writing that I I, I stole everything from you, Skipper. I'm never going to walk away from that. 
but it's all right to borrow from each other. What we just never do is borrow from ourselves. Come on. <laughs> all right, everyone. As I said before, I saw this film a little bit ago, and I've been dying to talk to people about it. So, and I haven't really talked to anyone else about it. So I want to just kick it off. What was everyone else's impression of this film? Uh, I really am fascinated by it. It's, it's this, this incredible cultural object. It's so autobiographical. It's so unique in terms of uh, Wells's work overall. It's so personal. It's a film that feels like a reflection both on what was happening in Hollywood at the time, New Hollywood, sort of these young mavericks that were coming along, but also also about European auteurs. And it's uh, savagely funny about both areas but at the same time it's also baffling and difficult and hard to hard to track and i don't know i don't know what to think of it really i i I like it i think uh, and i appreciate uh, i think there's a lot of there there but it is uh it's a you know a mess (laughs) (laughs) that is not where i thought you were going to to end yeah no i mean it's a good mess but i mean but it is chaotic and incomplete yeah yeah i i think that that's a big part of it. I think it would be easier. Like, I I feel like talking about the quality of this film just seems like uh, such a red herring to chase because, you know, the, the director didn't, didn't make it, didn't finish it. And we're working from notes and ideas and a lot of half finished stuff. And I have to think the final version of this would have been tighter as it is. It's overwhelming, which contributes, I think, to that era of fascination. There's so much going on. There's so much to mine here about the time and place and the experience of being Orson Welles, I think, or really just the experience of being famous to a certain degree and having to live that down your entire life. But Mm -hmm. there's so much of this film that just feels like standing in the, the center of spotlights and cameras and interviewers and people who are trying to pry you apart and find out what's inside. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of a horror movie in a way. I mean, it's it's assaultive. It's terrifying. Yeah. So I agree with you that it's fascinating. I don't know that it's a good film, um, but I I don't know that there's a point in talking about whether it's well. We can talk about whether yeah, it's I mean, a good you film. Could. I, mean, I, th- I think you could maybe I think we should. Yeah. You could maybe call it. I mean, I, the film that came to mind for me was Eight and a Half. It's probably, sure. Maybe it's maybe his version of what Eight and a Half is, but um, or, or Mother. I mean, so yeah. much of it kind of feels like the last part of Mother once, oh, once they get to the Hannaford House. The, the, Aron- the Aronofsky film? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think he, you know, I don't think he traveled through time to be influenced. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's weird with this movie. A lot of footage from it had leaked out before. There's a documentary on the Afro fake Blu-ray and DVD that contains quite a bit of it. I think the Chuck Workman movie Magician, I believe it's called, the Orson Welles documentary has some stuff in it from there. I'd read Josh Karp's book. And when they screened this for us in Chicago... They screened the the Love Me When I'm Dead before they showed us the movie. So and there's you know it's footage of that in there. And yet I, I had really nothing really prepared me for what actually watching it would be like. It's a movie I'd read so much about and never thought I'd see in my lifetime. I pledged to the they had a crowdfunding thing a, a few years ago to restore. I'm like this will never happen, but here's my fifty dollars anyway. <laughs> you know and and uh, yeah uh, and yet to actually it was like remember I'm looking at Tasha when I say this. Remember in Sandman when there's that library of all like <laughs> the books that were never finished or mm-hmm. you know the, the, it was actually like taking one of those volumes off uh, and actually getting to read it you know uh so i was grateful for that i'm not sure it feels like a finished film i'm sure and there's just nothing in any way to disparage the people who edited it together and, and the faithfulness they took to wells's original um intent for this but i just can't help but there is a kind of shapelessness to it in a way that like the footage can be amazing but it doesn't necessarily feel like 
it's been put together in a way I think he, he probably would have found stuff in the editing room that he didn't find that that wasn't found for him necessarily. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a very noble effort, though. I will say this though: I think that uh, I mean they were going on the rhythms of footage that he had edited together, and, I, and so so I think I trust that that there was a scheme that he was working on in terms of of the jaggedness of of the movie and mix of different formats, the very rapid cutting, the almost deliberate shapelessness of it. I mean, really being a 122-minute movie in which most of it is at this party where there's all kinds of things happening. I th- um, my th- my thing is, I think I, th- I would think the action, the narrative would might have been a little easier to follow. Well, particularly the jumping between, the like there's a very large cast here of people who we get their names, we get their positions on the film, we get little like half-story arc for them uh, and then a lot of those arcs don't seem to conclude or go anywhere and I there came a point where I really had trouble telling some of these people apart some of them were more distinctive than others mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's a whole lot of people who kind of blur and I can't help but wonder if some of that might have dis- disappeared in the interest of strengthening some of the existing plot arcs or you could almost look at them like, like as a chorus or this massive representative group of people at least at the party who are acolytes and and collaborators and you know young filmmakers and they're all kind of just making the scene by being there so so really articulating those characters any deeper than it does is not really a goal i necessarily think the film has um so much as just giving you a sense of like what a party like this is like for the person at the center of it oh sure i'm not talking about spending a lot more time with the uh characters are here i'm talking about spending a little less time with some of the characters who don't much matter Mm. like there is a great deal of that that feeling of being in the center of a whirlwind but there are points where it feels like the story that he's trying to tell is better like some of the scenes that take place between hannaford and uh, brooksy brooks otter lake come down to just like a very quiet point where the two of them are are fencing and you get the the deep articulation of very complicated relationship going on there and i feel like there could have with selective editing been a little more of that kind of like directed give and take like i think there's so much of the chaos and perhaps more than than we really need to to get the point of it i'll tell you i i think he's showing a great deal of humility to be able to uh, to bring this film out into the world and to allow something I think that is this painful to be mm-hmm. to be exposed about the relationship between the two of them, uh, which you know, I, for one, I can't imagine Rich Little playing this character. It has to be Bogdanovich. Well, know? the thing they have in common is they both did impressions. <laughs> I mean, Bogdanovich was famous for his impressions. And, sure, but I mean, yeah. but but this character Brooksy is Bogdanovich, yeah. and this and, you know, and when when you get to that. Uh, I think quite memeable moment where he asks, uh, "What did I do wrong, Daddy?" Mm-hmm. Um, that oh my just, God! <laughs> which is just such a great line. Um, there's way too much mommy and daddy in this movie. What it's, did I do wrong, speaking, Daddy? Speaking there's of, a lot of mother, sweet, there's a lot of sweetie as well. But but I just think like you know you, you think of that relationship and how Bogdanovich worshipped Orson Welles, and then he became this hotshot director who made the last picture show on Paper Moon and just, what's the screwball comedy? Uh, what's up, Doc? What's up, I Doc? Mean, he had I mean, the world, world on the string. World on the string, right. Hottest, hottest director around. Huge commercial hit after huge commercial hit. And also, you know, plenty of critical acclaim. And then suddenly, you know, he had eclipsed the master. And also maybe maybe Wells felt like he'd 
cheapened art in some way or gone commercial or but gone Hollywood in a way that Wells might have found distasteful. I mean, there's a lot of just raw professional jealousy at the root of this relationship, but um, which in which in real life there's a relationship fractured mm-hmm. uh, and and to be the custodian of this in many ways. You're right; it is an act of humility. It is, and I mean, for him to involve himself in the shoot to be to have that their relationship exposed to the degree that it is in this film, and then for Bogdanovich to take care of this movie and, and to, to bring it out into the world. I get a lot of respect because that that is a hard, painful memory to uh, dredge up. I would think. Pshaw, Orson Welles said it wasn't based on reality or autobiographical <laughs> in any yeah. way. So obviously, it's just a bunch of stuff that happened. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's just about some filmmaker that has nothing to do with Orson Welles. <laughs> We should also not sell short. It's co-written uh, with by Oja Kodar, who was his uh, romantic partner for the last few decades of, of his life and co-stars in the film. Was it that long? He, the, it was from the 60s to the 80s. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they were together for a long time. And in some ways, became she became sort of the guardian of the film, but also in some way, as I understand it, part of why it wasn't released for so long. But one one thing in, in the documentary, which uh, which I don't want to be too hard on when I say it's superficial, I just feel no. like maybe just slow down the editing a little bit in that movie. It was, you know? trying to, it was kind uh, of like trying to be a documentary version of The Other Side of the Wind. And yeah, it yeah. Kind of, it's just like, oh, settle, settle, settle down. Or, or <laughs> just tell us, just tell or us a story. Or fake. Yeah. It's got kind of like F for fake elements. It's kind of a faux, faux sure. both of those things. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, just don't, yeah, it's just, just t- tell me the story. Yeah. But uh, she uh, recounts how he credits her with unlocking an erotic element in his filmmaking that he never had before. And th- and that's uh, you know all over the film within the film, which is kind of what I want to talk about because mm-hmm. I think that footage is incredible. Yeah. In some ways, it's kind of parodic, but mm-hmm. it's also it's like your parody is stunning. You, you yeah. know, and, it, and it's like you could just make this movie and it would be a fascinating film to watch as well. Was that was that your impression as well? I mean, I think the footage is beautiful. Uh, I think just sort of the like the impression impressionistic feel of particularly of uh, following uh, John Dale around um, just like looking in his eyes as he's experiencing Oja Kadar is is pretty stunning for me the film took a, a monumental turn when Hannaford's direction starts to intrude itself like you have this this relationship between them that just feels so 70s so like grand and slow and iconic and like they're they're both basically standing in for kind of a, like a Godardian type of cinema uh, you know this cinema of, of image and of like these big iconic symbols of you know the mysterious woman and the, and the man who follows her but represents his own kind of very removed cool and then all of a sudden you have Hannaford's voice slobbering all over them and making it making it dirty mm-hmm. you know it was it, it's basically something beautiful that becomes something obscene and unpleasant because he's there as a voyeur deliberately messing with his actor's head and i mean that for me is one of the most compelling and horrifying things in the movie is all of the things it makes you think about the process of of making movies and particularly trying to put erotic images into movies but also just the question of like our tourism and what parts of a director uh, are being expressed in sequences like that the fact that it's a psychological game and it's like an ugly like erotic psychological game Hannaford is deliberately playing brings a whole new like narrative element to it but it was also just very squirmy to watch I, I find the film within a film just absolutely fascinating it's maybe my favorite thing in the other side of the wind because I mean the look of it is spectacular I mean some of the most staggeringly beautiful images but 
it's almost like an airplane level parody of Antonioni. Like it is mm. just, it is just a brutal <laughs> takedown of Antonioni, while also being kind of a parody of what Wells was thinking Hollywood films wanted. You know what I mean? Like, like, what am I going to do to this film within a film to make it more commercial? Well, I'm just going to like start you off by having you watch the steam room scene and having, uh, having my actress naked virtually the entire time and, and inserting all some violence and these sorts, sorts of things. I mean, so, so you have it working on a lot of different levels, I think both as a parody of high European cinema and then also sort of a jab at Hollywood and what, and what this, filmmaker believes it is that Hollywood wants. Yeah, it's it's so strange to think of this as a sincere attempt to find his way back into the Hollywood marketplace, which I think on some level it was and continued to be for a long time, something he really tried to get out there. There's that AFI tribute. Mm-hmm. You can read this, watch the whole thing online and it's featured in the, in the doc where it's a tribute to Orson Welles. It aired in primetime television back when television would air such things. Um, <laughs> yeah. And includes, like, please, uh, I, need, I just need some money to finish my movie. And that didn't work. But it, but it, it was, it's odd to think what would have happened to this movie had it been finished and released. Yeah. I mean, it, just, how's it beside, like, Last Tango in Paris or something? It seems strange to me that Wells would ever have thought this was a film that would get Hollywood financing. I just you think that the film is totally aware of that too, uh, mm-hmm. you know, cause you have them screening it to this Robert Evans type who doesn't get at all what he's seeing. And what he's seeing is a good chunk of the movie that we're seeing. And so I don't, the, the idea of a film, this experimental and crazily structured, even at this particular point in the seventies would get a round of studio financing seems very far fetched to me. Um, and almost kind of a joke, but, Maybe it wasn't just based on the AFI uh, presentation. And also just, the, I mean, the movie itself is just so scabrous about Hollywood filmmaking and the pretensions of, of pretty much everybody who makes movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's some really high comedy at that party, even before the party, when you have the journalists in the car asking terrible questions, yeah, just absolutely awful questions uh, that Hannaford is, has no interest in, in answering. And then you kind of move that, like that pretentiousness and heady faux intellectualism to the party. And you have all of these people kind of lording it over each other with like how, how pretentious and up my own ass I can be. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, like this movie does not feel like a movie that that loves movie making or people in the business or people around the business or the process like every part of it just seems angry yeah. I think except the film within a film which seems you know distant and dreamy and completely outside and and maybe that's the point is sort of on the one hand you have which I guess is often the point about movies about making movies. It's just like, here is the art that's being made and here is the ridiculous chaos and idiocy that surrounds the making of any art. It's definitely an old, bitter, cantankerous person's movie. But I also think that it's a young film in certain respects too. I think there, you know, there's a excitement to it of Wells trying to reinvent himself. I mean, this is not, I think I've seen a pretty solid number of Wells films. This is nothing like, anything i've seen him do closest is for fake but that's a very different movie yeah no right it is it is but i mean it is true in that sense like it's deconstructing itself a little bit i mean i think he was you know working towards something but for him to do this i mean there's a there's kind of an excitement i mean you know and or maybe embracing more of a cassavetes type of style for the Mm -hmm. way he embraces uh, improvisation and kind of these formless but 
spontaneous scenes. I mean, there's something... That's overstated a bit, though, as Jonathan Rosenbaum, I, I heard him like talking about this film in the screening room. He said, like, they, they really, there was this, it was pretty tightly scripted. I mean, there's just moments that have to be, like Hopper mm. talking to, I think it's Hopper talking to Chabrol. I mean, that's obviously just, a, you know, in some degree, a conversation that's been captured, but uh, but I don't think it's really that improvised. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it, it certainly feels that way, though. Yeah. Man, I, I want more of that conversation. I was, I was a little... <laughs> Like I went into this movie without any expectations whatsoever, because uh, I had a feeling it would confound them. But like I came away from it, like my my main takeaway was just I wanted a little more of that conversation, like with those filmmakers, and I wanted a little more of Hopper, like at that age, talking about filmmaking and his filmmaking ambitions. It's it, just it's kind of an electric moment. It is, it is. And, and before we say old, it's worth noting that Wells was fifty five when he started. Oh, yeah, this. You're <laughs> not, right. not, not you're right. old. Okay. I mean, it's it's you know it's like it's kind of like. In the same way that like he made Citizen Kane when he was twenty five is also like he made this angry old man movie when he was fifty five. You know? <laughs> Always precocious. Yeah. He had had such reason to be bitter though. Like sure. he had he had been through the trenches in Hollywood by this point and back again. Yeah, he had. You know, you know what another couple of things this film reminds me of because it's just it's so steeped in cinephilia in general, is it reminds me of Clouseau's Inferno, right? Yes. Yeah. That was another case of a of a filmmaker who had been associated with a certain period in French filmmaking that other French filmmakers had sort of left in the dust, trying to reinvent himself and make himself relevant and making something pretty radical. Uh, so it reminded me of that. And also that reminded me... Uh, just a little context, it's a movie that Henri George Clouseau could not finish... Uh, Years later, a lot of the footage surfaced in a film called Clouseau's Inferno, and it would have blown minds. It was like, I mean, yeah. you know, it's kind of like uh, the, the hallucination sequence in, in Vertigo, like taken to the next level. And this, like this a whole stuff. movie of that. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, yeah. And the, I guess the other one would, would be some of those late period Otto Preminger films, <laughs> kind mm. of like, kind of like, I need to figure out what the kids are doing, mm. <laughs> and uh, this is what I've come up with. So uh, it kind of fits into all that. But I also think like your reaction to the other side of the wind is just the more you're steep in wells and the more you're steep in films of that period and what he's making reference to, just the richer it's going to be. Because I think you come to this film ice cold or without a real sense of him or 70s cinema or European cinema at that time. I think it, I can't imagine this film would hold up at all. And we've seen that reaction in some quarters of the internet as well. And, and it's <laughs> yes, not, not, not a great look. Cause it's basically kind of like, you're not really willing to try to meet this movie even halfway. Uh, it's just like, this is not what I'm used to. I don't like it. Yeah. And to me, that's so strange <laughs> just this the this film that that was i never thought again i never thought i'd see is, is just now another option on netflix next to the latest season of daredevil or <laughs> bojack horseman or or, or 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 whatever you know it's like or you could watch this well, whatever this is that's how video stores work right that's true it's true yeah it's true. I, I mean i think you have to come to it with a certain amount of enthusiasm for the opportunity to see in the first place mm-hmm. just an enthusiasm for the possibility of the experience and you know as i as i said before i i think it's maybe not a good movie uh certainly not a great movie but it, it's an experience it's an undeniable and and fairly unique one kind of a weirdly es- essential movie especially if, if you're interested in wells this is uh, is an amazing thing to be able to see this and uh, just a fascinating new chapter in a story that we thought was over yeah i mean it feels like almost like this rosetta stone type of <laughs> type of it movie. really does you know it's cur- curious about that i was just sort of thinking like uh, the, the beginning of it with where the cameras are all pointed uh, uh pointed at you and the flashes are going 
going off and all of the different snatches of dialogue are going off. And it's just, as I say, it's completely overwhelming. I had a period of just like, I don't want to be here. I feel up against the wall and, and completely assaulted by this film. But the more it unpacked, the more I was like, is this just like Orson Welles telling us what he was always about? And like going back and looking at his filmography, like out of nowhere, I started to think about the degree to which his movies are about looking for truth, about, you know, mysteries being unfolded. And like, you know, Touch of Evil is about like looking for the truth of what happened in this situation at the beginning. Falstaff is about, you know, a character who builds lies around himself. And at the end, when he's stripped down to the truth, it it destroys him. You know, Citizen Kane is essentially about the question of like who this man is and all of these people trying to figure out who he really was and then here you just have this this man who's an enigma this man who's an enigma wandering through a huge crowd of people who are all trying to get their teeth into him and pull him apart and then there's sort of the question of is there anything really there when you find out what there is there it destroys him yeah well it's almost kind of like with him that you know i mean you you with Susan kane you find out what rosebud is and everything becomes very tangible but here it's just like you know, later in the career, like this and after fake, it's like a rug gets pulled out from under you and reveals another rug that also gets pulled. And it's just, it never ends. It's like this, I guess, magic trick, as he liked to, likes to put it, where it's just, there's no, uh, it's very slippery to kind of figure out what exactly it is that's being revealed ultimately. Yeah, but F for Fake is also just fundamentally about the search for the truth and okay. whether it can be found. I mean, like that in and of itself also seems a little like a Rosetta Stone. Also, I think I just called Chimes at Midnight Falstaff. Yeah. Well, that's okay. We, okay. we, all, we all got it. Okay. Um, we should talk about Houston, who I. Oh, my God was playing like some sort of like collection of ticks from from wells and ernest hemingway and from himself and i think i think maybe himself above all i mean mm-hmm. it is it is in houston was such a a gregarious figure and i think he's terrific in this movie I, and, and i can't really imagine anyone pulling it off maybe not even well i can tell you one person who would pull it off who jason robarts yeah, huh. yeah, Robarts would have been great. Yep. Yeah, he's the only one. Okay, but also it's, it's just meaningful that it's John Houston. Yeah, I think, yeah, it does that that extra layer to it as, as well. Yeah, um, just because he's like this huge towering figure that, that was a filmmaker himself, and he's got the same kind of old line quality or more to it. Yeah, and just sort of like you know, like Wells, he's, he's there's a whole you know all this lore just around of his filmmaking adventures, his travels abroad, the shoots that are as fascinating as the actual films that they led to. It's, it's kind of incredible though that I mean that Houston still had more bullets in the chamber. Uh, a lot. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, he had not even made uh, Man Who Would Be King at this point. Was that seventy five? I mean, that was just it. I mean, he had commercial hits still, and, and in a way that Wells never would. And, and it makes me think, you know, Houston could work within the system. Could Wells have changed you know, enough to make Annie? Um, <laughs> I, I, just, I don't. I don't know. Well, I mean, know? Though, though, yeah, that's true. I, I, well, I mean, I also never. I, I don't think they really have a whole lot in common as as directors. As, no, as directors not really. at all. I mean, he, he, Houston is kind of your famous argument against the auteur or the the sort of you know he he's the one who's always left out of that conversation we talk about auteurs because he's somebody he's somebody who doesn't have this kind of traceable style that Mm -hmm. that auteurs really clung on to he just happened to just have a collection of really good films under his belt but there were never he was never anybody who did a huge amount of experimentation though he did some i mean if you look at a film like you know fat city or or, or, or wise blood or some of these later films well, i suppose it's a really odd movie i mean uh you know it takes a, a lot of 
courage to turn the dead into a feature length film. I yeah. mean, it's a novella length experience. It's mostly just you know, kind of like this, just someone going to a party in a way, you know, uh, that's a tough thing to, that's to his last, a, that's his last movie. What do you, what yeah, a run he, I mean, too. Annie aside, and maybe victory people didn't like that much, but like, you know, wise blood, man would be King, Pritzi's honor, you know, he had a good, under, under the volcano. Well, I mean, I'm talking about later end. films. Oh. Yeah. No, I mean, oh, if you go back yeah, I mean, further, if you go back, I mean, you he really had, get some great stuff. Yeah. Just an incredible run just sure. in a few years in the 40s and 50s. Oh, my gosh, you sure did. You know, but to, to me, he's he's always Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> is he? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm serious. The Bakshi? The, the Bakshi yeah. version. He was, he was Gandalf. And that when voice he, is commanding. It's such a distinctive voice. And like in that movie, in Lord of the Rings, like he's forever talking in like fantasy aphorisms, basically. You know, Do you want to go on a grand adventure? And there are so many points in this movie. Pretty good. <laughs> There's so many points in this movie where he kind of drops out of baiting people and abusing people, and he'll just drop these little aphorisms. And every time he did it, <laughs> I thought he was about to pull out his Gandalf the white hat and put it on because he just he has these moments where he drops into wise old man mode, uh, and it's always a little chilling and leveling too in this film too. The way the way he's able to kind of absorb all of this action around him without saying much, and then when he does say something it just feels like it just cuts like a knife when he it's like oh wait you're actually i'm actually in control of this whole situation yeah do you buy the suicide i mean i know he's he's a hemingway-esque character but there never quite feels like that tracks the suicide at the end it does for me i i think i think your your pauline kale character um kind of lays bare his illusions Mm. and particularly in light of what happened with his movie, The Other Side of the Wind. He can't get it funded. It's fallen apart in a way that it really seems like he did it deliberately. It it seems like he pushed his leading man to the absolute edge and drove him away. And he, it seems like in the moment where it's happening and he's saying, you know, keep the camera on him and he's kind of glorying in it, it feels like he did it on purpose. You know, it feels like he tormented this man to get an emotional reaction out of him because he couldn't get the kind of emotional reaction out of him that he wanted. And then that moment at the end of the gas station, it's like he has been disguising his sexuality and subverting his sexuality for so long. And then he tries like just very gently to reach out to another living person and he's rejected. And in that moment, it seems to me like, what does he have? He doesn't have his career. He doesn't have his reputation. He has all of these syncophants who don't understand him. And again, just want to get their teeth into him. He doesn't have anybody who seems to like care about him for himself. I absolutely buy the suicide. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm with Tasha on that. I mean, and if you think about it, it's like, I was comparing it to Eight and a Half, but with Eight and a Half, you're dealing with a director who's at the top of his game in the middle of his career, and, and everyone wants a piece of him. But here they do, they want a piece of him, but more like a vulture. <laughs> like vultures want a piece of you, you know, like carrion birds. I mean, there's no, there's nothing left for him to accomplish. Like he's being thwarted in everything that he does as Tasha. Uh, says so. I, I thought that was plausible. I mean, he's, seven, he's seventy years old. What else does he? What does he have to really live for? I guess uh, kind of before we wrap up, because Keith's got that wrappy up. You kind of look on his face. No, it's more the should we wrap up? Because <laughs> I, I can keep going. This is the thing we talk about. I'm just curious whether this movie has a hero or even a protagonist. Like, is there? I'm not sure that there's anybody in this movie that I sympathize with particularly closely. I feel like they're all different degrees of awful 
And many of them are fascinating degrees of awful. Like, I thought Julie Rich was a really interesting and rich character. I thought Zara Valesco was a really interesting and rich character. Like, I really feel for, was it Billy that's the reformed drunk who falls off the wagon at the end? Yeah, I think so. The Baron, like, has this certain, like, distance to nobility. And, you you know, you feel for aspects of what Hannaford's going through. Well, Brooksy. Nothing? Nothing for Brooksy? I feel poor, like poor, poor, put upon. Brooksie. I feel like Brooksy is. Brooksy feels like he's the cynic who's still having success, and he feels himself kind of above it all. Hmm. And there's there's certainly a a neediness in his relationship with Hannaford, but I also feel like he's embarrassed by him, and even more so when he realizes that Hannaford is about to ask him for money. Yeah, like there's a lot of different com- complicated levels of of need in that relationship but it's not a particularly pure like relationship of admiration or relationship of of wanting to help him there's no altruism in it it's it's very complicated i don't know <laughs> you know i'm just uh, for some reason I, I my brain is going back to a star is born and thinking about how his uh, suicide in relation to uh to bogdanovich's career or something like that um anyway Especially that scene when when Hannaford says, "Let me get another look at you," to, to Brooks, which is a very strange thing for <laughs> him to sh- say. We might want to. Can we move away from suicide movies for uh, <laughs> three I mean, in a row? I know what our next pairing is, and I I think we are suicide free. We're not cool. death free though. No, well, I, yeah, maybe too much for us. Okay, I could accept an argument that Bogdanovich is the well, that that Brooksy is the hero. Skeptical question mark, but that he's the protagonist of this movie, and that mm. this movie is about him, him navigating. I, if it's anyone's memory, it's him. I mean, Bogdanovich gets the narration at the beginning, which is clearly. A new piece of writing. Yeah. It references cell phones and uh, that's kind of the worst part of the movie. <laughs> modern technology. <laughs> I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know how you solve that problem, but it, yeah. I, I don't think, I think I, I, was, I was kind of like thrown off by that bit of narration. Yeah. Uh, so mm. that, that, that seemed like the late period Bogdanovich rather than when he was doing everything right. But I think if, if it's anyone's memory of the, of the evening, it's his. Maybe. Yeah. It's not, but he's not in every scene either. So yeah, it's tough, tough to say. Uh, there's more to talk about. I'm sure we'll talk about it next episode when we compare it to Shirkers. But first, a break and then some feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Scott, can you read one of the shortest pieces of feedback we've ever received? Oh, sure. Sounds easy. Here we go. Aaron writes... Mid-90s, kids, you're doing it, right? Yeah, <laughs> we're not doing it. But, we but are not. We thought about doing it, but but kids is, for, for such a looming movie, a much-referenced film, you can't, it's hard to hard to watch these days. It was hard to watch at the time. If you recall, you know, the the, the Weinsteins had to make up a new company yeah. to get, get the film out into the world because it was such a controversial film. Because I think at, at that point, I think Disney had bought Miramax at that point, right? Right. And so they wanted to get, a good distance away from kids um, because they're Disney. But my feeling is like you could have paired mid nineties with any number of movies. You could have, mm-hmm. you could have paired it with clerks was one I was thinking of quite a bit. You could have paired it with early Scorsese, particularly mean streets. There's a lot that you could have paired it with some, with some Gus Van Sant movies, uh, Paranoid Park, especially. Good movie. 
Yeah, it's a really good one. But what about Although you? Although it's hard you... to argue that Paranoid Park is a, 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 <gasps> a dated classic. It's a classic. Okay. It's really good. Didn't that come out like five minutes ago? Uh, no, it's, it's at, least ten, at least 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, I guess I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. Our, well, the, but uh, what, what, what's, what's the precedent we always use for classic films? It was like. Uh, what was the closest one? Uh, it was the one uh, that um, Andrew Stanton directed uh, that we did with the uh, Mars. Like, uh, oh, yeah. John Carter. John Carter, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, the John Carter of Mars role. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, we do try to choose films that you can actually watch. And Kids is not only not streaming anywhere. Uh, it is out of print on on. It never came out on Blu-ray. I don't. I don't believe, and it's out of print on DVD. You can buy it secondhand, but it'll cost you a little bit of money. So it's probably streaming on the Pirate Bay. Well, you know, that's <laughs> that's we, not the right thing to we're do. We're not. We're not the kids, Scott. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the kids probably want to see kids, though, don't they? Yeah, it, I mean, I would have been really interested in that pairing. I was very much enthused about mid-90s, and I, I feel like there's a ton to talk about. I really enjoyed that movie a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really cool filmmaking, but even more so, it just, like, the amateur acting in it, like, the that ensemble of kids I found so believable and in, in lived in. I think it's a really great movie. I really wanted to uh, take it up, but we've just got so many choices right now. And I, it was just it was it was hard to find space and it was hard to find a pairing. For it would have it. been a really fun show, I think. Because I, I mean, I think for one, I think there may have been a range of opinions on mid nineties, which I, I was sort of mixed and negative on. But so that one made interesting to kind of have a little bit of fighting between Tasha and I. It was a rare, a rare <laughs> uh, disagreement. And then um, and kids, God, I can't imagine what kids looks like now. I, 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 did, I didn't like it. I didn't like, like it, it then. The time. But yeah. I wonder if I'd like it more now. I've come around on some Harmony Corinne stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, I always like the way Larry Clark shoots movies. Um, yeah. But I just remember thinking like it was like reefer madness of its day. Kind of, yeah. I mean, like it, like it, it ended up, its message ended up being, I think, an extremely conservative one, or maybe an inadvertently conservative one about yeah. about. Hey, look at this! <laughs> look at look at the kids of today. They're out of control. Uh, parents, look what they're doing uh, when you're not looking. Yeah, and that generation grew up to just be wild rebels that changed the world. Oh no, they, <laughs> <laughs> we kind of we blew it. Yeah, All right, we, we well, did. We, did. <laughs> we also got some. We're, we're disaffected. And cool. Yeah. Whatever, man. Um, <laughs> we also got some suggestions for our speculation about what a 90s version of A Star is Born might have looked like. I threw out Mariah Carey as probable, I'm going to say, only possible female lead, but couldn't think of who else she could, she could be paired with. Our listeners had some other ideas. Tasha, can you share some? Sure. J.S. May replied, A Star is Born? Forget Mariah and cast Whitney Houston opposite a Marvin Gaye analog played by Denzel Washington. I can, I can watch that. I can see that. Yeah, that, that, that could have worked. David wrote in, Better than Mariah Carey for a 90s Star is Born is Jennifer Lopez. I just don't know. I have always felt like that singing was sort of the second thing for her. Yeah, it was always so process like the yeah. like that the studio really got in there. Yeah. <laughs> worked with that material, you know, it's like finding Jennifer Lopez behind all of that. Uh, she could have played the part though. I mean, she's a good actress. Yeah, she could. She could. Well, all right. Well, Christian suggested there was a 90s A Star is Born. It was called Showgirls. Yes, I feel like I feel like the human Drake meme or something. Just kind of like <laughs> no, and then it's like yeah, <laughs> that's right. You got it. That's a pretty good point. We should should we do Showgirls sometime? I mean, or is it just, it's been discussed to death though. I've never seen Showgirls. Back in the day, I avoided it on purpose, mm-hmm. and uh, like <laughs> ever you since heard it then. Was bad? Oh, because I heard it was beyond bad. Also, I just the advertising really grossed me out. It was just it was an era where it seemed like 
the the roles for women in film had moved from uh you know sidekick and reward to this sort of like garish kind of exploitation that was just like female sexuality we've realized that if uh we empower you enough you'll take off your clothes <laughs> and like that particular movie just felt like like the height of it like the height of of tacky and over the top and i like i just wasn't there for it and then since then i have never heard a single good thing about the movie uh, except from my husband, who finds it hilarious, and like we quote it all the time, even though I haven't seen it. It's a, it's a. Fa- I mean, I don't get to sidetrack too much. It's a fascinating film. I think what you're referring to is is not. In a, I don't want to say it's not in the movie, but it's definitely much more in the marketing than it is in that because like they tried to put it out as an NC-17 film, and I think it kind of backfired. Like I was a big Verhoeven fan, and I felt like if I wanted to see that in the theater, I might have to wear a trench coat. You know, mm. <laughs> it, it just felt like going to see a dirty movie. Well, um, but see, that's the other thing is. Uh, I I have a complicated relationship with Verhoeven and I I just don't trust him. Mm. I like I don't trust him with my with any form of emotional commitment. I think he's a I th- <laughs> the the words that come to mind are all uh, ridiculously dated. I think he's a rapscallion. <laughs> That's pretty dated. I think he is he goes a rogue? He he might be a bit of a rogue. He might be a bounder or a cad, but mostly uh he goes over the top in ways that I find like that he he intends to be satirical and I just find like excessive and revolting and tiresome. Mm. And there have been Verhoeven films that I've really enjoyed and and really been into, but there's an awful lot of them that are just like, I see what you did there and I don't want it. So now just for the sake of conversation, I'm looking for, we should find something to pair some Verhoeven movie with, if not. I I mean, I I think, I think Showgirls is definitely going to fall in the bad category for you just based on what you're telling me about Verhoeven. But I think you can, there's a reading of Showgirls as a, commentary on america on, on mm-hmm. you know late capitalist excess i guess as people and, the kids and would yeah. say and and exploitation is ultimately and... a film about what america is and it's this garish exploitative disgusting money-driven violent thing that yeah. is happening that is happening in showgirls so i think it's a, a very harsh film if you look at it from a certain angle oh, it's also sure. a lot of, it's just... also fun Whenever I hear the words, there's a reading of this excessive Verhoeven film where it's a commentary on excess. <laughs> I just go, okay. I know. But they're always right. I'm though. just saying. I, I think they're always right. I'm just saying. <laughs> they can be uh, right without it being a movie that I, I need to yeah. put in my own personal eyeballs. Yeah, fair enough. Well, we'll look for, we'll find a Verhoeven pairing soon. Joe writes, longtime fan of your podcast. Thank you, Joe. Uh, I'm responding to your conversation on A Star is Born from this week. On the episode, you questioned who would have been in a 1990s Star is Born remake and questioned why one wasn't made in that decade. I believe it was, but just under a different name. That movie was Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights is about a young ingenue, Dirk, who everyone knows will be a big star in the industry from the second they meet him. In a clever twist, P.T. Anderson changes it to the pornographic film industry instead of Hollywood, but the same beats apply. Dirk is mentored by Jack, a once-celebrated director who is slowly fading in the industry as video technology changes how his films are made and received. We watch throughout the movie as Dirk's star rises and Jack's fall as they fight, lose touch, and then eventually reconnect. P.T. Anderson pulls from Robert Altman in his cast and staging and pulls from Scorsese for the camera movements, but the story is pure A Star is Born. On the podcast, you mentioned how the gender dynamics never change in the reiterations of the story, but I think Boogie Nights does a nice job of changing that up by focusing on Dirk's rising eh, stardom. Mm -hmm. Rising stardom. I bet he didn't mean that, did he? But I Mm -hmm. caught it. I caught it. He said rising. I feel like I need to pat you on the head. It's like an erection. (laughs) 
So, so what you're saying is that it's commentary on excess that is itself. um, I love this letter. I I think, I think this is spot on. I think this is really insightful and it's something I never would have noticed, but I, I, I think he wins. I think Joe wins and I think he's completely right. It is a good, it is a good one though. I would say that Dirk's trajectory starts to, What's the word I'm looking for? Collapse. Uh, yeah, D two max. His career goes fl- flaccid. I would say his career goes. It goes. Uh, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. If you if you follow it all the way through, the the does, does not track all the way to the climax of the film. Um, <laughs> but I think there's still a lot. I think we're now forbidden from doing an episode on Boogie Nights or any or anything sex related. Or film. well, or Showgirls. My God, are we all twelve? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad. But but I think this is a fun letter, and I think you can just whether Showgirls or Boogie Nights, you know, is deliberately drawn from the stars born is not or not you can just see how much that story is embedded in you know in american cinema right oh sure um and and manifests itself uh, you know in unintended ways and or maybe intended ways in other work all right well thanks for all the great responses we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations so we can feature your response on a future episode or post on facebook for discussion to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll put The Other Side of the Wind next to another troubled production, Shirkers. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod, so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll see you on the other side of the wind. (laughs) Yeah, right, the wind.